Hey, it's Dan here. If you want to hear this episode of the Backchat Podcast without ads and get extra content that no one else gets, head to backchatstudios.com.au where you can sign up as a patron and access all of our bloody good merch. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yes, g'day. Welcome to Back Chat. You are here. We're joined in studio by just an absolute cricketing legend and great. And I know you all know what we're going to ask him about first. We've got a cricket ball sitting on the table. Uh, this man right in front of me. Uh, we don't do long introductions here. David Boone, how are you, mate? I'm very well, Will. Um, now, have you seen this cricket ball? Have you seen, did you have a look at that when we walked in? No, I didn't. I saw it sitting there, but I haven't seen what's on the face okay. of it, no. Well, we're going to get to that in a little bit because <laughs> the first question we ask every guest here at Backchat, Booney, we know you've been a great cricketer. You've had an international career spanning over over a decade, 107 tests. You've scored a lot of runs at test level, 7,422 to be exact. We want to know what your greatest sporting achievement is off the cricket field. We don't. We know you've been a great cricketer. We know we've, we 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 do care, but we tell our guests we know all about your cricketing career. What have you done in other sports? What's your greatest sporting achievement? And you can go all the way back to uh, Tassie Juniors because I know you used to play a bit of footy. I played a bit of footy. I love footy. Um, I think being reported for the first time playing for North Launceston and I got six weeks first defence and the bloke I hit was out for ten so, <laughs> what did you hit him with? the little right hand <laughs> what did he do? I had a jump though I put a trampoline out in the ground he was six foot three and he'd been hitting our centre half forward in the back of the head all day so I thought I'd bugger it and kept going yeah that's very good uh, and that was it. And then ended up on the pile of about 15 other blokes and number taken in the shed. My old man was in charge of the amateur footballs in those days. And I went home and said it was a bit harsh. Yes. And Launceston not being a very big place, he said, no, I've already heard. And if I would have been in charge of the tribunal, you would have got 10. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Boone's not grace. happy. <laughs> not a happy chappy. Oh, mate, well, um, thanks for coming in. We appreciate your time here at Backchat. Um, we've got some great sponsors that look after us here, Whippersnapper, Shelter, Bluebet, Margaret River Roasting Co., Leadable Cameras, 
and of course Dean Bradley, the real estate man. Um, we get looked after. We thank those guys. They help us put all of this together. This cricket ball here, Booney. So your greatest sporting achievement. Uh, mine. I was a state uh, under nine state hurdling champion. Dan, Dan's been waiting for. We we had a chat to Mitch Johnson here on the podcast a, a little while ago. You like it when the cricketers come through, don't you, Dan? <laughs> well, tell it, tell Booney about it. The just ball. it just validates my accomplishments a little more when someone yeah. who can actually appreciate what I've done can see it, and especially in the flesh. So give him a look. Well, f- firstly, I might just quickly ask, what was your best bowling figures? Mate, I got 14 first-class wickets in 29 seasons of cricket, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure, but. It, it, a lot of uh, two catches dropped in Test cricket. One LBW right. turned down. That's a that's because a long story. Who, okay. dro- who dropped them? Uh, I bet you remember him. Greg Ritchie twice, th- two and three balls <laughs> in Delhi. Okay, so the reason I ask is because so this cricket ball, I'll just get it because I know you, you really yeah, want to have a look. Yeah. No, I mean I I didn't bring it up. Um, actually, I think you may have well, done that. Um, so this is best performance in a final. Um, under twelves, Chuart Hill Cricket Club. Um. Premier club here in, in Western Australia. Five wickets for 16 runs. And that's the ball. Mate, where were you? Were you on the radar to play for Australia at that day? <laughs> I, did get, I did get a few letters, but I had other things going on at the time. Um, and I was actually on a hat-trick um, with the fifth wicket, and that was the last ball of the season. So I didn't get a chance to... Well, you just got it in. You, you couldn't back it up then. <laughs> no, I couldn't. But um, it was just the tail end, and we lost the grand final. So What did you bowl, Bernie? Tweakers, little offies? Little offies, mate. They're more like flying saucers. They didn't do a lot. <laughs> Some pies. <laughs> no, I, think, you? Yeah, I, I bowled a couple of times in one-day internationals and once was actually against Australia A in Brisbane. Um, I can't remember why AB brought me on, but uh, Ricky was facing as a younger bloke and I just walked down the wicket before I bowled and I said, don't you get out. It'll be the most embarrassing time of your entire career <laughs> and I bowled about five overs for about ten and he could not hit it off the square. It was <laughs> hilarious. Tassie v Tassie. No, Australia versus Australia. I right? know, but Tasmanian versus oh, Tasmanian. Yes. You took a big scalp that game though, didn't you? You you um you got one of the better batters out. No, I remember. because of my skill set and you know, just that I was in form at the time. AB bowled me again in Melbourne. I got Phil Emery out. That's right. I bowled him and I appealed. I didn't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they have to do that these days, don't they? They have to show respect to the umpires. And I think with everything but bowled, yes. <laughs> I think that's a reasonably obvious one. <laughs> oh, that's very good. So uh, you're a batter though, Booney. You speak about your, your bowling. You're a batter. You didn't, opening a, a, you didn't start as an opening batsman though, but you did move into that realm um, throughout your career, what's it like coming through the ranks of Tasmanian cricket and you know f- finding your way into the Aussie team? You're batting at eight, I think, maybe your first game. I think it was reasonably, yeah. Um, first game for Tassie was a, a one day game in a Gillette Cup and batted about number seven or eight um, against Queensland up in Brisbane. Uh, then moved into mainly batting at number five and then eventually into number three after a little bit. Then got picked for Australia. Started at number five, moved up to number three, and then we had a bit of a predicament in Sydney where um, AB said, right, the selectors would just pick Mark Taylor, and he's never batted anywhere but opening. But he said, it's your call. 
you're the resident opener, you do what you want to do. And I said, well, mate, what's going to be the best balance for the team and for him to come into it is for me to go back to three. Right. So that's sort of how that evolved quite quickly and quite simply. And he had a decent career and I actually preferred going back there. I was going to say, if, you, if you're going to pass it up for a player, it may as well be a future Australian captain. Yeah, we didn't know that at the time. <laughs> yeah, but, you're an old boy giving a young boy a Well, shot. not quite an old one, but an established one giving the newcomer in. So, no, no, he started off quite well and um, ended up having a decent career himself, didn't when, he? When you first started opening the batting, you, um, your first pairing was with a good mate of yours. Yes. Jeffrey Marsh. You made a century in your first game as an opener. Yep. Um, Swampy and I actually did it. Uh, when we shouldn't have done in Adelaide in the fourth test against India, we had to. It was going to be a draw, and there was about an hour and a half or so to go in the game, or a session or something like that. And Wayne Phillips was the opener, but he'd been keeping for nearly bloody two days. Right. So they um, just said, "Oh, would you mind dashing in there?" So that was when Swamp and I first got together, and we just said to each other after it, "Well." That went all right, didn't it? <laughs> and uh, we just put it forward that we keep doing it. And Wayne dropped down the order a bit for the rest of his career. He's a great mate of yours, Swamp. Yeah, we first met when we he was 16, I was 15. Um, there was a, a schoolboys carnival going on in Hobart and Western Australia came over a bit before that and um, we played each other in Launceston, Hobart before the carnival started and... Um, if my memory serves me correctly, Swampy got 100 in both games and panned us all over the park. But I, I don't know what it was. Even at that young age, we, we seemed to click and got on really well. So then we met up through under-19s and then started playing for Australia and against each other. Um, I was accused of favouritism once here in Perth where Swamp Nick won on about four, Michael Divinuto wasn't sure whether he'd taken the catch, so I thought I'll do the right thing, even though the umpires had given him out, and said, look, we're not sure, so leave him there. 158 later. <laughs> 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 Always happens, doesn't it? What's, um, how important is batting order to, to batsmen at that level, um, moving from sort of out of the opening to three? Is there, I don't know, is there a lot of pride in that? Well, there is. I, I suppose um, you, you work out with you know guys different ways that they naturally play or the way that they can adapt. What's the best balance to your top six? Um, how they're going to work together. But opening to three, there's not a lot of difference. It's what's uh, colloquially termed probably the engine room and everyone in there is, all three in there are marginally insane because <laughs> um, I, I, I don't think it makes any logical sense to enjoy facing the new ball all the time, uh, especially against the West Indies and other quicks. But um, we really enjoyed it. We had, we had a good trio there when Mark got established and Swamp was still there. Um, we, we had a good relationship. Each of us could bat with anyone. I had a great relationship with um, Mark War, who followed me, and... Um, don't know how, but we, we made a lot of hundred partnerships and I just enjoyed watching him from the other end <laughs> and hanging in there. So, uh, you know, it's just one of those things. Number three, you've got to 
you know, if you, you unfortunately lose an early one, you go in and you assume the role as an opener. Um, if you, they bat for a while, you then go in and, and you assume the context of what, what the game is at the time. And, you know, if that's to push on after the first few, well, away you go. You mentioned the West Indies there. Um, what are your reflections on on that facing the lineup that, you know, for, for mine, you know, Kirtley Ambrose brings to mind, but there was a whole bunch of them, wasn't it? Uh, more than a bunch. <laughs> you could call them a bunch, I suppose. But uh, I had the privilege of facing Andy Roberts when I was 16, if you want to call it that. And uh, Jack Simmons, who was my coach when I was a kid, he was captain of Tasmania and he said, look, everyone at the pre-game meeting, he said, look, Andy, I played a lot of county cricket against him. He's got two bounces, so just remember, and he'll give you the cross-seam one first, which is a bit slower. And you'll, get, you'll think, well, well, that's not that quick. And then he's got one down the seam. 16, forgot all about that. Hooked the cross one for four and thought, that's not as quick as it looks on telly. How good am I? Yeah, um, this is wonderful. Next one, whack. I don't think I even got my bat off the ground before it hit me in the chest. So, you know, he told the truth, but I'd forgotten all about that. But there was Roberts, Holding, Marshall, Croft, Garner, Amby, Patterson, Bishop, a couple of Benjamin brothers. Um, mate, keep going. Was it scary? Feel. Was it scary? Is that a word that you use? People, no. people look at it and think, oh, they must be scared. No, I don't, you, you can't be scared. I think there's always – it'd be no different to footy. Well, when you played, you know, you, there's always that little apprehension and anticipation of, you know, what's going to happen today. And – you always go out and give it your best shot, but it, I think it's just that butterfly thing, apprehension. Not scared, but there's probably a fear of failure more than anything, or you, you deem that you've failed if you don't score any runs. But uh, I think when, when I was reasonably young, my mother taught me a very valuable lesson of the way to look at that, that if you could be brutally honest with yourself at the end of the day and say, look, I gave it everything I did today, but it didn't work out, learn from it and move on. Um, you know, so her, her understanding of that was that the only people that fail are those that don't try in the first place. So that sort of helped a little bit on occasion. Not a lot, but you still get really disappointed. God bless mum, but before the days of mobile phones, I played a test in Brisbane, got out, walking off the ground, chucked the, spat the chewy out, Took the helmet off, set a couple of F-bombs and then the phone in the room <laughs> rang and I said, hello, and she said, I can lip read. <laughs> and, and that was it. <laughs> was that, that not scary? That was scary more than anything else. <laughs> exactly. Uh, she was a beauty though. She, um, every time I swore in the home, oh, I'd get the wooden spoon across the backside Every, she adored my son and he adored her and they had a wonderful relationship when she was alive but he could say whatever he wants <laughs> and all she'd say was oh she'd smile and say he's just expressing himself <laughs> <laughs> meanwhile you're carrying well, around welts mean, on your ass still from I've a still young kid I've still got scars on my backside <laughs> from the wooden spoon <laughs> oh that's great well, well so what about Australian cricket right but, you know people we've had, we've had years across you know history where been incredibly successful 
when you first come into the team and start playing, it's not a it's not a period of success. When, you know, your first four, five, <clears throat> six years, it's bloody tough work. It, it was tough. It was sort of um, really a, a, a double hit on Australian cricket where my first game was the big threes last. So Lily Marsh Chapel all retired at the end of that day, uh, one day game in Melbourne. Uh, so we had that, and then 12 months later, Rebel Tour to South Africa. So we, we lost quite a bit of depth out of Australian cricket, and you know, it, it took quite a while to to get guys back in there. I can remember I was, I'd played, I was vice-captain, played about 15 games. AB had played, I think, 60, and we went on a tour in New Zealand where the other 12 guys out of the 14 hadn't played 60 between them. Mm. So it's sort of a bit difficult. But then all of a sudden we we got our first coach ever in Australian cricket, Bob Simpson, and he challenged us to do all sorts of things. And he's funnily enough, his first challenge for us was to become the best fielding team in the world. Right. As he thought, if we can field really well, that'll follow on into your batting, your bowling and everything else and catching. So um, we worked and worked and worked. Our backside's off at that. Um, then probably unexpectedly won the 87 World Cup. Gave us a lot of confidence. That started gradually moving through into um, test cricket to where we beat the England in England in 89. But I think a lot of that credit was due to the selectors of the time too. I think, you know, selectors are exceptionally important in their vision and the way they look to the future, not just the immediate reaction. And God bless his soul, he, 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 we, we lost him last week. The Colonel Laurie Saw from over here in Perth was um, our chairman of selectors in those days. And although they didn't directly tell us, we just got a sense through conversations that... The selectors had picked about 17 guys that they thought would take Australian cricket through to the future. So it sort of gave us a, a confidence to be able to go out and play our way, to go out and learn how to win cricket matches rather than just trying to save them and to move forward knowing that you'd probably get another chance. Uh, and it worked uh, and it was a really big decision in Australian cricket. So Bob Simpson comes in and coaches, your first coach in Australia. Like, uh, that At that for, level, yeah. I mean, for, for me, that seemed from footy, you know, without a coach, I'm not sure what – Yeah, what were you doing what before? Were you doing? What were you blokes doing? Was, he, was, it, was it game plan or was he in there making sure you blokes weren't stuffing around too much? Oh, I might have been stuffing around <laughs> too much and keeping an eye on us. But, you know, cricket just changed. It clicked over and it was – it had to start to become more professional. You know, like somebody like Ian Chappie will probably hit me, but you know he used to run the show. The captain ran the show. Um, uh, we, our managers normally would come out and help with fielding practice, and he'd just do whatever he wanted to do, yeah. um, basically. But then it became more structured. We, uh, when I first played, we had a manager and a physio. In Australia, that was it. And Earl Alcott, our physio, did the fitness work as well. And, you know, we were athletes <laughs> back then. We were fitter than what people think, but we enjoyed ourselves as well. But um, that was it. And when you compare that, and then it started to grow. Then we got 
Bobbing as a coach. When we went to the Ashes tour, we had a scorer, so there was another set of hands. A bloke called Mike Walsh from Victoria, and the manager was separate. And the physio, that was it for most of my career. Um, occasionally, we would have guest appearances. Um, well, like a motivator. You know, like a, you'd have a motivator. I can remember Kevin Sheedy coming to speak to us in Melbourne. Uh, we had a baseball guy that came in and taught us how to throw. Um, and it was amazing how we threw and he changed us really? in the way that we threw and held the ball and all sorts of things like that. Um, so, you know, and then it grew. Whereas now you've got a squad of, say, 16 and you've got 18 support staff yes. for a cricket team. It, it's a lot. They're getting their hands held a little bit these days, is that what you're saying? Um, well, some people might think that, but... <laughs> Mate, my state of mind, I would have loved to have been able to prove to a psychologist on tour that I was mad. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that, that would have been a good thing to do. <laughs> would, have had, would have had his work cut out for him back in the day. Yeah, um, you were saying um, that Chapel sort of ran ran the show and from the outset, even now, it sounds like, it, it feels like the the captain has the, the most say in a cricket team and the coach, I mean, sometimes you don't even hear from the coach maybe unless they do a bit of media, but how does that um, sort of dynamic work in terms of coach and captain? Well, I think in, in cricket it worked quite well. With No, the coach, the captain, the vice captain, a group of senior players, we would discuss a, a lot of that game plan stuff and how we were going to go. A lot of it was around the mental side of things and how we would approach it. Um, like as we all mentioned before when we were rebuilding a lot of it was around trying to be positive rather than thinking you know how much we're going to get beaten by today it was about being positive and trying to win and move forward so they do that but in cricket it's probably the coach is in charge off the ground and the captain's in charge on the ground um and the captain, a lot of times, I know when I was captain of Tasmania, I asked the coach, Greg Shippen, another Western Australian, who was a really good coach. I'd say, Ship, I need you to keep your mind on what you're observing and give me the stats. Stick your bib in while I'm on the ground, I'm going to belt you. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we had a great relationship and that's sort of the way that it works. And you, you can discuss things during breaks and things like that, but the captain's basically in charge. Uh, on the ground, he, he would discuss with his vice-captain or other senior players or any player. If you're a good captain, you should be able to listen to everyone and then you make your calls out in the ground with the knowledge you've got. Do, there, there's another big difference that you know we spoke a bit about over the last couple of days together. Um, the opposition camaraderie that seemed to be, it might be less now, but certainly back in the day with you boys, you had some great battles with the West Indies, with English teams in Ashes, but were you mates off the field? And oh, how, yeah. how, did that, how did that work? Because that doesn't really happen in AFL. Uh, it probably does, but probably more towards the end of people's careers, not while they're actually playing, I'm not sure, but um, I would have loved to play in AFL football. Not sure I've been quick enough or tall enough. Sounds like you would have copped a couple Mate, of weeks. Might have. <laughs> you know, I had a decent spring though. Took a hell of a hanger once for North Launceston over a bloke, Wim Bass, and he was shorter than me. <laughs> <laughs> I was up there for five minutes, so it was wonderful. Um, maybe it's, it was one of those things that, you know, 
you're representing your country out in the ground, hard as a tack, no, nothing given, nothing gained. Um, but after the game, traditionally, you would go in, the, the side who had batted on the day the most would go into the fielding side and you'd have a beer or a soft drink or, water, or a glass of water, whatever you wanted to do, and have a chat. What, what that did, I found, was a few things. It helped alleviate anything that happened on the ground and the realisation that that is war out there, but this isn't. You learnt an enormous amount from great players as a young bloke going into an off opposition dressing room. You know, like imagine a kid in our sport being able to go into a dressing room and, and meet Greg Chappell, meet Dennis Lilly, Rod Marsh, in my instance, you know, like people like Viv Richards and Gordon Greenwich and Desmond Haynes and become good mates in the end. And I, I think it's one of the... I was even, you know, it's so sad when Malcolm Marshall, who tried to kill me all the time, but when he died so young, it was so sad. Um, and we were good friends as well. So, you know, and even Joel and the big boys, it was, it, it's a great thing. I, I look at it and it's all nice, you know, you make a good living out of it, you go there, but one of the greatest things you'll ever get is those friendships. And I'm positive that I could go to any cricket place playing nation in the world and if something hit the fan you can make a call and someone will come out of the cupboard and give you a hand yeah that's cool um with beers involved though because no doubt you weren't just sitting there sitting in there having holding hands and singing kumbaya and having a couple of waters no in moderation mate, in yeah moderation, moderation responsibly yes. did was there any can you recall any funny moments after after games with two opposition teams was was there any, any Anyone carried on too much was there? Oh, there was a couple of those. Brian McMillan provided us a couple in South Africa when he brought a firearm into the dressing room and th threatened to kill Jeff Lawson. <laughs> 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 it was Jeff or was it Merv, one of the two. And we, it was actually a, Had live, a gun. live. <laughs> but that was part of their life in South Africa and probably still is. But we couldn't believe it when he walked in and said, right, you blokes talk to me like that again out on the ground, I'm going to change. And he's got this gun oh my carrying gosh. on. It was quite funny. The, the other quite funny. <laughs> the other one was Desmond Haynes. That was right. That must have been Merv. And then Desmond Haynes got out to Jeff Lawson in Brisbane and Jeff gave him a bit of a mouthful on the way off. And we could see in the old Gabba, the original Gabba, there was... Desi, with one of those, what do they call them, the, the blocks, and he had a knife and he was just sharpening it all day. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> and ready, ready to go Lawson at the end of the day. Um, mate, there was a few funny moments, yeah. But another one I, I thought was quite odd. It wasn't funny at the time, but in Melbourne, went into the West Indian dressing room, Jeff Dujon, great mate of mine to this day, he was just laughing and I said, all right, that's probably my, at my expense. What's so funny? And he said, well, Patrick bowled a ball to you this morning. I was in my wicket-keeping position and he said, when you played it, there was not one inch of your body under stump height. I said, well, what's so funny about that? I'm glad I hit it. It probably would have killed me. And he said, that was what was so funny that we all knew. <laughs> <laughs> that's 
outside. Really. What was um what was your relationship like with wicket keepers when you're out at the crease? Are you um are you giving it back to them or are you sort of just focusing no, on the I was board? I was just a strong silent type, mate. <laughs> right. No, you. Well, I actually didn't say too much. Um, as a batter, it's I, I don't believe it's worth it because you're always going to end up on the wrong end of that. Um, it's one v a helmet and a reasonably large moustache probably helped hide the fact that my lips were moving at bat pad <laughs> when I was <laughs> you spent short a lot of leg. time you spent a lot of time within oh, earshot of that great oh yeah, yeah a lot of time in there but that was deliberate like I'm no dummy I can remember we played the test match in a test match in Adelaide against India and we had a big change in the team and none of them wanted to go into bat pad when it was the day of the junior pro goes in there. So I said to Abe, I'll bugger them, I'll, I'll do it. And I took a couple of catches and I thought, geez, this is all right. You sit in here, you don't have to run around the field and if it goes past you, you pretend it's hit you, so you fall over, you don't have to run anywhere. It's brilliant. <laughs> no, but so seriously, you have a helmet on in there? Yeah, helmet. But then I said to Simo, mate... I've just had an epiphany. What about we have a specialist first slip, second slip, gully, extra cover, blah, blah, blah. Why can't that bloke be a specialist as well? Because he could take a catch that'll change and turn or win a game the same as anywhere else. And he just said, this is the advantage of having a coach. He said, all right, if you're willing to work with me and work hard at it, let's go. So we just do probably 45 minutes extra at the end of every session on bat pad stuff and off it went. you cop any big hits while you're in there? Oh, a couple, but not, you know, the, the percentage basis, not really. Um, got hit by Jarvid Mandad in Lahore, um, where it missed the helmet, hit me in the neck. Um, of a pull shot off Peter Taylor, the off spinner. And Jarvid tried to be nice to me, but I'm afraid I wasn't very nice back um, <laughs> in that instance. And then I got hit twice in a week in at Trent Bridge in England, once for, off Derek Randall and once Robin Smith. And the Robin Smith one was a bit hairy because the, the helmet I'd borrowed for some reason, I can't remember why, Carl Rackham's helmet, and it had the Perspex ears and then it's a grill attached to that and it just exploded. And Jonesy, God bless him, reckons he found a bit of Perspex outside the rope. <laughs> but um, I was a bit wonky after that, just for a little while. I had to go off for five minutes. I didn't like going off, but um, what do you call it? And had a dislocated top of the jaw and had to get the physio to click it back in. Your jaw? <laughs> the top up near your ear, like in front of there. What's that joint called? Yeah. Whatever uh, it is. Yeah. That had collapsed in. Boy. I saw um no, it's all right. I saw a was it Macram um fast bowl to your head. I was watching some highlights. Um in highlight. A, in a, Doesn't sound like a highlight. Well <laughs> yeah. It was a one day and, and um that I mean we're talking about being scary, but he, he really threw some pace down. But he, he was quick. Him and Waka were outstanding. Wasim was extremely difficult because shortest run up, still quick, swing it both ways. Great strength and control. But, yeah, we, we played a one-day game here at the Wacker. Is that the one you're talking about? I think so, And, yeah. and Jeff and I, the, the wicket 
it wasn't too long after they'd relayed it, but it looked really good. So I said to Jeff, look, we, we, I can go out here. I don't think I'm going to wear a helmet. He said, oh, I think you should for the first few overs. Just have a look. <laughs> oh, all right then. And then got pinned by Wacker, <laughs> by Wazim bowling round the wicket. Yep. Swung a mile, I think. You remember? Yeah, Did you have a good yeah. look at it? I was going to cut it. I mean, that noggin. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Jeff, given that you guys didn't have that opening partnership, I mean, you would have hung out with each other on away trips and travelling. You, you, know, you do a lot of travelling as cricketers. Yep. Uh, did you two well, – you didn't get up to too much mischief, you two? Oh, a little bit occasionally, but not too much. Um but we, we just had a great relationship. When, when we started opening, we basically said, right, well, we've known each other for a hell of a long time, but we've really got to get to know each other. So probably four days or so, four or five days before we started a test series or a test match, we would start doing our thing where we'd spend a lot of time together. We'd talk, talk about what we're going to do, um, how we thought they were going to bowl at us. I knew that on Wednesdays you always wore red undies. We knew each other inside out <laughs> so that you could have a relationship out in the ground that I think in the end was epitomised by the fact that we played an ODI against the West Indies one night in Melbourne. I think there was 90-odd thousand in there and we couldn't hear each other. So we just made this decision that whoever was on strike and batting throw the rule book out the window and if they started running, the other bloke would just run and have trust. And we started doing it in all cricket and not calling and it, it gave us about three or four metres, which was fantastic, yeah. especially with running one. So your understanding and your trust of that was pretty good. But, you know, a couple of times we our discussions went a little bit too long, which they did one night in England. Yes. Where... We just thought we'd have a, a quiet meal, quiet beer. Five, I think it was five days out. Yes. And went to this little pub that I knew after our meal and said, come on, it's only early, we'll just have one. Yep. I met somebody in there, a, a, a little notoriety, I suppose, another sports person and a musician. Who were they? Um, Doesn't matter. No, I... Well, I don't like doing it. Okay. Who was it? It was, um, what's his name? He's dead now. Um, played for Liverpool Four. and Manchester United, Scottish bloke, Beard, Best. Okay. Gary Best? No, not Gary Best. Someone Best. Said, someone yes. Best. And not a soccer guy, sorry. He, uh, and a, a, one of the members of the Stones, um, Okay. And <laughs> okay. They, they George Best. A, George Best. And one of the members one of the Rolling of the Stones. Of the okay. Rolling right. Stones. So we and, and we went to this little club and they took us to and Okay. So uh we were playing we're actually playing the MCC in a sixty over game the next day. And so at about five AM <laughs> we thought shit, we better get back to the hotel. Um so we went in the back entrance so we wouldn't be seen we knocked on the door and one of the staff came out and can we sneak up the service lift um can you get us here's some money can you go out and get us half a dozen packets of 4x mints as well 
Mint. Or mint, the, the breath things. <laughs> to mask, perhaps, maybe. To mask, maybe a couple of drinks. And <laughs> then we went upstairs and showered, got ready, basically had to get on the bus. Got on the bus, we'd gone right up the, gone down early, got right up the back. <laughs> then Simo got on and he said, right, boys, 60 over going today, but it's a lead in, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, you, you can do your own warm ups today. Nothing. Strict or organised, and Swamp and I looked at each other and said, "There is a God." <laughs> so we we wandered out, keeping to ourselves, and everyone thought, "Well, they're just doing their normal thing; they're fine." So we ball and a bat, pair of gloves. We walked a lap. We put our legs up on the fence, one each, one stretch, <laughs> threw an underarm ball at each other, and went in. <laughs> How'd you play? And then. Um, so you, you, you're playing, you've walked in, out, okay. Yeah, this is again. the warm-ups before yeah. the game. Yeah. So we we go inside and start to get in the chair and I said, hang on, Swamp, I've got, I've got to dash upstairs. I went up and saw Nancy in the kitchen. Nancy. And said to Nancy, she'd been there for years. I said, love, we, we need the strongest pot of coffee that you can get and two of the greasiest egg and bacon burgers with brown sauce that you can make. <laughs> <laughs> and um, she, I said, but you've got to be real quiet. Come through the back door of the dressing room and we'll be out there. So she brought him in and there we are sitting there. We're under the shower, we're eating the, <laughs> eating the buddies and we're drinking the coffee and then we get the yell, hey, you two, AB's won the toss and he's batting. Went, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so out we went. Swampy faced the first few balls and didn't hit anything. <laughs> Then one hits his thigh pad. We got a leg by, and I thought, "Oh God, here we go." My turn. Played and missed the next two. And then we got together in the middle. He looked at me, and leaving everything up to me as he always used to, he just he just fired the question. He said, "Which one are you trying to hit?" <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "The middle one, but it's not working." <laughs> we. I wouldn't advise young children to do it, but we ended up breaking the world record for the opening stand of, in 60 over cricket, and I think I got about 150-odd and he got over the town. Oh, what so, preparation, mate. Absolutely. Sometimes you're blessed. But we didn't do it very often. I think it's the only time we did it, which we're not, not going to risk that again. I'm actually surprised you didn't continue rolling that out, mate. I mean, the preparation, obviously. Oh, that's very good. What, what about... Um, I did hear while we're telling stories. I did hear one story from you, um, and now I might have had a few beers myself, so I couldn't quite recall when it happened. But you, you needed some assistance from one of the members of the hotel staff after you know you're away traveling. You know you've got to get all your gear together and make your way down in hotel rooms. You yeah, know what I'm talking that, about? That was a bit. What was that talking it was about? A bit naughty. That I'd been extremely efficient after a test win in Cape Town. And I'd packed up so that I could stay in bed a bit longer in the morning. Yes. Um, but unfortunately, I'd been too efficient. Right. And in taking my suitcase down to the foyer, I didn't have anything on. <laughs> you were naked. I was naked. <laughs> what a sight for the locals that was. We, we haven't got long enough to tell the whole story. <laughs> no, that's very good. That's the essential one. Ian Healy, I think, did make a bit of it up and exaggerated. But Only the good stories have bad on them. Yeah. Who was um who was your bunny? 
Oh, I've got to say Phil Emery. He's the only wicket at any standard that I ever got. <laughs> um, I've got a few in English county cricket when I was playing over there. I think about six or seven. <laughs> yes. But the, the most disappointing aspect of my bowling, and as a bowler yourself, mm. Dan, yep. you, you would like, you know, have probably more repute than me. But <laughs> <laughs> the most disappointing one was um, I got an LBW turned down at Wellington in New Zealand. I was bowling, ABS on a bowl, and I specified which end, and there's a slight slope on the Wellington wicket and the breeze. If I had that going to my right, breeze coming over my right shoulder, I'd be able to drift and then turn the thing prodigiously back down the hill. So he said, all right, give it a go. And I said to umpire Dunn from New Zealand, I said, mate, you are in for a real treat here. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're going to see somebody at the top of their game <laughs> and expertise. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to bowl the first two right outside off stump just to give you an idea before we get to the real business. <laughs> and, and I was bowling at a bloke called Danny Morrison who, if he got naught would be the world record holder for the most noughts in a row. <laughs> so I'm bowling against quality here. Yes. The third ball, I said to him, umpire done, I said, are you ready? <laughs> you be on your toes. And, and I actually bowled a ripper and, and did Danny like a dinner and he's caught in the crease. You know, it's dipped, it's spun. You can either think fizzing. And <laughs> <clears throat> hit him on the pad and I went down on all fours. Screaming, <laughs> and he said, "Not out." And I said, "Why the not?" And he said, "David, I'm really sorry, but in my opinion, it wasn't going quick enough to knock the bales off." <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like your sort of bowling. Yeah, pies. Um, is that a thing that actually happens? Like developing a relationship with the umpire, and do, are you, do bowlers work on them in order to try and? skew anything in their favour? No, I wouldn't call it that. Being an ICC match referee now, mate, that, that's not exactly the smartest thing you're going to say all morning. No, I mean, like, like you're saying, you're setting them up, like, say, on the third ball, like, look for this. Some of the guys will, will form a relationship, but I think it's more important in the role I do now, listening to them and watching and observing an extremely difficult role in any sporting field to be a referee, an umpire, whatever you want to call it, it's exceptionally difficult. You know, when I played, all I thought about was, is he going to give it out or not out, and is he right or wrong? Yes. But everything else that goes with it, there's a lot of umpires that, through respect and through other and effort, they'll try and form a relationship with players. Not pally-pally, but so there's just an understanding that will go on there, and, and, and that's quite important. Um, I suppose especially from a behavioural sense or a dissent sense when a decision is made. So they'll talk to them a bit, but no, no, there's not really... A, I don't think a lot of the, the... Some of the bowlers will do the same thing with certain umpires. They have really good relationships, but I don't, it's never there to affect a decision or sway a decision or anything like that. Mm. Because, mate, you've got what is it, 48 cameras or 58 cameras in a ground and you start fiddling the books, 
You're going to get caught. Especially yeah. by match referee right here. Before we get to post-life cricket for you, Booty, I mean, um, you're an incredibly good batsman. Not that it gets forgotten, but you were 87, 88 International Player of the Year. You made a shitload of centuries. Um, did, did you feel uh, a leader in that sense in terms of the way you batted or were you, were you someone that used to just go out and bat? Mate runs like what? What were you as a cricket player? Because you're a bloody good one. Oh, I think just team orientation is a key, and I was lucky enough to play for a long time. Lucky enough to be secure in my position in the side. Um, it was an absolute legacy and honour to be a part of a group of blokes that brought Australia back in the eighties to become the best cricket team in the world, to finally beat the West Indies and be a forerunner to nearly a 20-year period that Australian cricket dominated with players like, you know, with Hayden and Langer and, and Gilchrist and McGrath and Gillespie and who else can you put in there? Damien Martin, etc. And, and they were just the, fantastic. And I, I suppose Warney started towards the end of my career and to play a couple of years with him before he really moved on and became the best that ever has been in in his particular field. So, but it was mainly team orientation, whatever the team needed. And I think my leadership within the group outside the captain was to be sergeant, to be his rock. And our relationship was exceptionally strong. And to lead the other blokes by that, to talk to them about if you're an individual, you'll stand up and eventually it won't work. But if we do it all together and we enjoy each other's success, each other's performances, and we do it as best we can every day of the week, we're going to get there. So that that was basically my role. You mentioned Warney, you caught that hat-trick ball with the J. Fell over very timely, didn't <laughs> you know, it? Um, that was the quickest ever seen him move. <laughs> uh, well, you know, that, that, that's one of those historical things, I suppose, that you, you never forget that you're a part of it. You know, like, there's going to be a lot of blokes yesterday, or from yesterday, from the game at, at uh, Optus Stadium with Josh Kennedy finishing, you know, that they'll never forget the fact that they were a part of his last game and that he kicked eight. Yeah. Like just something special always happens Yeah, that you, you never forget. And Warney's hat trick was one of those for me. Did you buy you a beer for that? I think we might have one after it. We won <laughs> the game as well. <laughs> what about... What, what he did do for me, which I, I've got to say, he's one of the most generous and caring blokes. And he, he managed to procure, which only Warney could. He, he got the face page of the Herald Sun the original one that stands outside the Herald Sun in Melbourne, in those grates they used to put them in and all that. And he signed it off and got it framed and <laughs> gave it to me. How, how did he get it? He just asked for it. He just would have gone in and got it. So I want. <laughs> Shame on. I am. The Warn. It's been pretty hard uh, 12 months for Fozzie Cricket, you know, speaking about Warnie. Mate, it has. Uh, you know, it started a while ago. It was a hell of a shock for all of us, but... Um, and Jonesy fell over in, in Mumbai yeah. at the Taj. Um, I was only speaking to him the night before. Um, I spoke to Brett Lee while Brett was still in India. Um, 
and I couldn't believe it. Jones and I were tight, good, very good mates. You know, he, when my father died, he just turned up, didn't tell anyone I was coming and just went straight to mum. He didn't go to mum, he went to mum mm. and said, look, Mrs Boone, I'm here. I'm here for two days, anything you want me to do. Mm. Blah, blah, blah. Heart of gold. Pain in the backside at times <laughs> with a heart of gold. But I, I was talking to him and, and Binger told me you wouldn't believe it. He trained in your T-shirt that morning with a, with a photo of you on the front of his T-shirt. Wow. And I just burst into tears. Yeah. But um, that, that one was hard. Then to lose Bacchus, Marshy, quite suddenly and again too young. Um, then obviously Warney was a real shock. Saw him through the Australian summer regularly. We used to catch up all the time. He'd, we'd have a chat, always make time for each other at some stage, wherever it be in the world. He, he would tell me things I didn't want to know. And he said, I've always told you everything, so I'm still doing it. <laughs> I don't need to know. Um, and thank God there was only one of him. But, uh, you know, that was just a hell of a shock as well. Yeah. And... You know, at 50-odd, early 50s, mate, just far too early. And then Roy Simons in a car accident. So yeah, 14, 18 months is a bit much. Um, the, a lot of us now have upped our ante in our communication and talk to each other more regularly than what we probably were. Right. Um, we're pumping each other's tyres about making sure we get checked. Yes. Going to do the right things with all... Things men, yeah, and don't just say it won't happen to me. Don't be bulletproof. So, my wife's medical. A lot of our friends are medical. So recently, I've done one of those echo stress tests. Geez, they're hard in a mask. Really, you got to use the mask because you're in a hospital. But they, you know, at one stage they say to you, "Well, blow you after you've exercised. Blow all your breath out and then just hold." Well, you're on the side while they're doing this scan. Try and do that while you're puffed. <laughs> and with a mask on. Oh, it's damn near impossible. <laughs> so give me a peg for my nose and we'll see how we go. But, it, but it's, it's important to do all this stuff. And um, it's not a big inconvenience. So I, I would advise all your listeners and everybody that, especially once you hit about 35, 40, Go on, sunshine, rubber glove, the whole business. Yep. Start with that one yep. and move on to the others as yep. you get a couple of years older. That's good, mate. Some uh, really, really good words about the boys. And sorry about all the losses as well. I mean, it's just <clears throat> been dreadful from, you know, we don't even we don't even know them, do we, Dan? So um, maybe we move it to the back end of cricket. Um, you're on the board of selectors. You spoke about, you know, how important they are to a team and, and what you're doing now, which is ICC match referee and the – at the elite panel, um, do you feel like you're still a big part of cricket? You know, cricket's a big part of your life with what you're doing? Guys, mate, I, I've been blessed. Honestly, when, when I left school, I wasn't great at school. Um, I went and worked for a bank. Yeah. Then I started playing cricket, but the bank were so supportive of me. It, it wasn't funny. They were a fantastic supporter of not only me, but Tasmanian cricket. Um then our general manager said at one stage, 
look, would you like to go into marketing? And I thought, oh, yeah, I'll do this. Golf, lunch, all that stuff. <laughs> this would be fantastic. That's what I thought marketing was. And he said, no. I've spoken to a mate of mine at Sturt University. He's agreed that you can do your course AWOL. So you, on your tour of Pakistan, you can start. You do that, you get yourself a degree in marketing, a major in whatever you want, you've got a job. It's probably one of the best things that ever happened to me. Um, then I finished playing and, and the then chairman of Tasmania Cricket, Dennis Rogers, who was also one of only two guys ever to serve two consecutive terms as Cricket Australia chairman. He was asking me when I was going to finish and he said that's all he wanted to know. So I told him this year... I played a couple of years for Tassie after I finished Test cricket. And I said, look, I'm going to England for one more year, but I, I, I know I'm not going to be able to make another Australian summer, so this will be it. And he said, are you sure? And I said, yes. So he said, all right then, I want to offer you a job working for Tasmania cricket. I said, I know you've got a marketing degree, so you come down, you can look after marketing. <laughs> and I said, oh, I'm going to have to go home and talk to Pip about that. And he said, so you should. Moving from Launceston to Hobart, it's a big thing. <laughs> because that's like Collingwood, Carlton. That's, well, mate, that's Thank God there's Campbelltown in between. And <laughs> they hate each other. Collingwood and, Collingwood and Carlton, there's Fitzroy in between. <laughs> that saves a war. But um, he said, well, you go home and talk to Pip. And so I went back home, travelled back after the game, went home. Said to Pip, you won't believe it, but Dennis has offered us a job, but we're going to have to move to Hobart when we get back from England if we do it. And she said, yes, I know. We're driving back down tomorrow and we've got two interviews at a couple of schools for the kids. Uh, got a real estate agent going to start showing us around to pick up a house, blah, blah, blah. And I went, what? She said, yeah, he's been talking to me about it for 12 months. <laughs> <laughs> so he was all organised. So it taught me a val- valuable lesson of administration. You get lady on board, the boss, Correct. who makes the decisions, and the bloke will just follow. My, well, uh, my message out of that was, I'm not exactly very clear who the boss is, and <laughs> so did I. Right, the decision maker, all the time. So I did that, and then after a couple of years, our board wanted to um, streamline and pyramid the cricket department. Uh, it was very flat-lined and individual. So for the next... Uh, nine years, I went down there, established that general manager cricket, uh, Australian selector for ten years. During that time, and ten years ago, ICC. Yeah, there um, it is. Blessed. Okay, I got three. We got three questions left, Dan. Okay, um, three big issues. Two of them humour. One of them current. Sandpaper Gate. Your ICC, you're, you're in your role as an ICC match official then. I don't think you were officiating in that no, game. No, I wasn't, no. Where, 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 what's your views and thoughts on that and then how it was handled post the incident? I, I think it's – I might preface it by saying that, that when I joined the ICC, Jeff Crow, who incidentally was the referee at that game, is a very good friend of mine from – Years and years ago, we played against each other underage cricket for New Zealand, Australia. Um, he played for South Australia. We played test cricket against each other. He was a New Zealand captain. Um, he said, welcome aboard, Sunshine. I said, thank you. And he said, it's a great job until the shit hits the fan. 
And I said, well, what is the shit at the fan? He said, you'll work it out. We're all different. <laughs> and quite quickly, I, I worked out in, in our role, we can determine in, in uh, conjunction with other parties if, if there is an issue of safety for the players, i.e. an act of violence or terrorism or anything like that, that we have the power to call a tour off. That happened twice, once for me, once in Bangladesh, which thankfully it calmed down. And then I was in Christchurch when the bloke went nuts in the yep. the mosque while New Zealand were playing Bangladesh. Mm. It's That's quite a confronting situation to try and deal with, especially when you've got a, a guy in charge of Bangladeshi security who's an ex-army general who fought in the War of Independence and tells me that that's his democracy in his country. Not sure it is in mine, mate. <laughs> Here we go. Yeah. Um, that was confronting. Then I had my first ever ball tampering situation and I found that enormously confronting because you're basically going to, when a bloke is accused of that, I have to sit down, look him in the eye, tell him he's been charged. We've got video evidence, we've got this, we've got that. I don't think you can argue, but I'm basically calling him a cheat. Mm. And I find I found that really difficult to deal with. Obviously, the same as anything in life, the more you do it, I'm not saying that I'm still I'm comfortable, but I'm a bit better at it now than what I'm used to being a bit more realistic with it. Um, Mate, I'm no different with the South African one. For, for something like that to happen in the Australian cricket team was exceptionally disappointing. Um, I don't think anybody can argue that it didn't happen. It's extremely obvious that it did. Mm. Whether it was managed or not, Jeff's management of it was as per ICC code of conduct rules and he did that as he should but within that as a, as a rider to those rules the host the, the players nation in those serious offences can impose their own penalty if they wish and we could argue all day all night and for weeks about whether Cricket Australia managed it well whether they didn't whether they were too severe or what but it's in history now Mm. And it's a bit like the media, I suppose. It's sadly, something goes on TV, that's gone in a bit. Something goes on the radio, that's gone in a bit. It's something that's in print, so they're forever. And that'll be there forever. So it's it's quite sad and I'm sure a very, very difficult time for all those involved. Um on any side of the fence of it. Good answer. Um, all right, two more, very important. The moustache. Uh-huh. How did it start? And, and, and how? what's the care routine? What, what sort of well, – what are we talking here, Bernie? There's not a lot of care involved. I'll give you the tip. There's <laughs> a bit of ageing. Um, I don't know, when I left school, 1978, were you born then, Dan? No. Good. Why did you ask me if I was born? No, I'm not. No, you born. weren't either. I know that. <laughs> I don't think anyone in the room has. Was. That's, that's correct. 
they were quite fashionable. I thought, I'll give this a shot. And it just took off. Um, you know, I, I had a couple of mates at school who were farmers and I asked them about fertilising and stuff and they said, well, you get a, a bit of acidic fluid, you know, like a bit of metho or something and you rub the green part of the goose dropping, make a mush, put it on your sleep, sleep at night and off it'll go. It'll just fertilise and... <laughs> And off, no, that's bullshit. But <laughs> that's he, I don't uh, know you well enough to know if you're talking shit or not. He, he, mate, it just happened. Um, and then sort of started playing with Merv. We went on an Ashes tour. Forex for our sponsor. They made a big thing of it. And Forex, the beer, sorry. Yeah. I was thinking the mint, the mint from before. Yeah, but no, no, not the, the beers. No, <laughs> the, other, the other one. Or Lion Nathan, should I say, rather than Forex. But um, it um, – and it sort of took off and, I don't know, just went with it. Um, it's only ever been off twice. going to say, it's ever been off. Been off twice, both times for charity. Once big David Foster, the woodchopper, and I. Yeah. We're on one of those telethon things for cerebral palsy. And we both agreed that if so, so much was raised, we'd take them off on the telly part of it. And they got there, so we had to take them off. Wow. And that was probably when my children were really young. But then the other time, um, Jonesy, AB and I got challenged big time by him, both of them, to do more for charity in Australia. Um, and at the time, he was doing all his walks through Europe and England and everything. So we got on board and over three years... AB, the first year AB walked from Sydney to Brisbane and Jonesy and I helped out on times and then Jonesy went Sydney to Melbourne and the following, same thing, and then the following year I, I was by far the best of the three because I went from Melbourne to Hobart <laughs> and there's a bit of water in between that. <laughs> so I could walk on the water, um, so to speak. No, I caught the boat and <laughs> walked around Tasmania. <laughs> and, you know, we raised a hell of a lot of money back in those days. And uh, part of that was Gillette was one of my major sponsors. And I went on the footy show on the Sunday one, yes. day after. And with Gillette again. And, mate, off it came. But my children were petrified. <laughs> They, they had never known me without one, and they just stared and had no idea. And, and how it anatomically happens that all of a sudden your top lip is just really cold and it feels like it's about three inches long. Look, you're blowing bubbles underwater. It's terrible. So, no, back it came, and it's been there ever since. I keep having to be reminded by my wife that it does need trimming occasionally. <laughs> and um, the stray ones, get them off. It's just keeping the changing colour. It's uh, very good, I've just mate. had a look. I've just searched David Boone without a moustache and there isn't a single photo. So it must have must have kept it pretty, you know, well, under wraps. grew it back very quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, as soon as it came up. Very quickly, yes. <laughs> if we can source a photo of David Boone without a moustache. I'd love to see yeah. it. 
Mate, it's not that flash. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the kids are horrified. Hides a, hides a multitude. <laughs> Last question, mate. Then we've got some questions from our listeners. Um, it would be it would be poor form by me as a host of a podcast to have David Boone on the show and not talk about this record, right? This record that I haven't really seen you ever answer properly before, to be honest. Well, who um, says I'm going to today? Well, I'm just I'm just winding you right into it, <laughs> and we'll just well, I guess our listeners will be the judge. Fifty-two beers on a flight. From Australia to England, did it happen? And is that the number? And tell me about it, please. What well, what I won't deny is that we had a beer. <laughs> okay. But to be perfectly honest, if it was that many, how the hell would I know? <laughs> um, I do know the exercise was initiated by Terry Alderman, and he was the one that initially gathered information and was in charge of the whole thing. Then my mate from Wandering, Jeffrey Robert, come on, you can do it. So he egged me on. Um, Were you drinking with anyone? Oh, yeah, I had partners throughout. Um, <laughs> Terry didn't drop out that many before I managed to do whatever it was. But, mate, I've got to be brutally honest here. I won't deny it happened. We all do stupid things in our life. And I'll finish by just being serious because... <laughs> You have fun, you do something, and then you think, shit, what about the ramifications to everything else, to your family, to your children, blah, blah, blah. And, and mate, yeah, it, it caused some crap over the years. And, um, you know, it's something that I regret a lot. Can't deny it, but I do regret it. Yeah. And it was stupid to be able to do that when you're in the public, public eye. It's good. I actually would prefer that answer if I'm honest, Dan. Yeah. I know everyone wants to have a laugh, but I actually prefer a bit of honesty from the great man. Thank you very much, David Byrne. It's been an absolute pleasure, <laughs> but I know this is why you're here. You know all about social media, right? Instagram. A little bit. Twitter. Not great, but Reddit, a bit. TikTok. Well, we've got social media. Will Schofield, social media. Yes, that's right. Some absolute brilliance here at Backchat. <laughs> Enjoy it. that. Absolutely. That's <laughs> yes, very good. Social media where the people, our listeners, get to ask you the questions. So we knew you were coming on. We put it out to the people and they want to know a few things about you. So if you're ready for it. Let's go. We're going to get into it. Drew underscore Hamish. Uh, it says, favourite wicket you ever took? Favourite wicket I ever took would have to be Phil Emery. He'll hate that. <laughs> good. Love it. J- Jado25, who has the better mo? You or B- Merv Hughes? Oh, mine, of course. <laughs> Mind you, he's not bad. He's a lot bigger than me, so it takes a bigger presence. But, no, I'm happy with mine. Yes, very good. Um, Michael.blythe.18. Uh, which teammate was the worst to share a room with on overseas trips and why? My opening partner. No, we got on well, but he was a shocker because he was illiterate. He couldn't read. And if I read, he would put, he would basically... In, Fur that I didn't like him anymore. <laughs> Why? So because you were reading. Because I was reading and like he rubbing in his face. Yeah, so he'd tear my book apart. <laughs> um, but we actually got on really well. I didn't really enjoy. Though I've got to be truthful here. I didn't really enjoy rooming with Jeff Lawson. Why? Oh, he's too prim and proper, and he had this air thing in the room that he. Circulate like an air purifier or something. Air purifier, basically because of the size of his nose, probably. <laughs> but it, yeah, only did it once, and that was enough. Very good. Um, Paulie Ab. 
what's the best sledge you ever gave and received and who did you love playing against purely for the banter? Well, it's a difficult one. I was the strong, silent type. Um, nothing nothing specific, but I, I, I did enjoy a lot of Merv's banter and that was against every team. Um, it, it would actually... Sometimes it, it's just mentally he was going. But he did say one to Hansi Cronio, and it's an old thing, but in the context when you're thinking about it, Hansi's belted him all over the park in a, in a tour game at Bloemfontein in Orange Free State. And then Merv ran in and just deliberately bowled this tiny, soft little ball and then rolled down the wicket... Farted and told Hansy to try and hit that for six. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's very good. I haven't heard that one. Uh, that's very good. Something better. Uh, I, I am Daniel Marsh, please. Um, uh, you filled a back pad with only helmet. Players these days have shin pads, etc. Why are they so soft? <laughs> I don't know why they're so soft. They, they are, though. I say it all the time. Well, you need your home in the box. Everything else can be fixed. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Looked after in there, aren't they? Uh, Boxall uh, was sort of... Yeah, yeah no, nah, we've answered that, um, yep. unfortunately. Phil Coops, number two. Um, thoughts on a Tasmanian footy team? Yeah, I, I'd be for it. I, I think we've been providing players... And footy, we're part of the, the heartland of Australian rules football and have been for years and have had some great players over those years. Um, so I, I think an AFL team on a standalone would be good. Um, the AFL have said that we basically stated unless there's a new stadium, you can't do that. They, they won't approve the 19th, last 19th, in that licence. Yeah. And so on, which, you know, is a bit harsh, I think, in my opinion. But then if we say, right, let's have a new stadium, a multi-purpose stadium in Hobart that is going to service football, cricket, concerts, rugby, soccer, everything, I'm, I'm all for that. That'd be a wow. But the same as the rest of Australia, everybody's in a position where there's a lot of things been in the political forefront in the last few years, such as, you know, medical, which has been highlighted by COVID, um, homelessness, da-da-da. And I would imagine spending $750 million or whatever on a stadium when there are still holes in those other things, there's going to be a lot of people who don't want it. I, I, I agree with them totally, but I think the benefit that would outlie a new stadium in in Tassie would would go alright. Do, do 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 the Tasmanian people have enough I know it's a footy state. I know um you know we see AFL games there. If they build a thirty, forty thousand seat stadium does that does the support come? Like is there enough there? I would hope there would be. Um it, it's a bit of a a thing in Tassie that a lot of people won't book. They'll wait and see what the weather's like and they'll make a decision on the day. <laughs> like, I, I know a promoter once got ACDC down at the old TCA ground 
but he had to sell so many tickets before they'd come. And he told them, he told them that he had, but he hadn't anywhere near it. But then I think it was 25, 26,000 turned up at the concert. And I think he'd sold two. Yes. Supposed to sell ten before they'd even come. <laughs> so we're all grateful for his little fib. <laughs> Thankfully it worked out and it was a nice night. But I think that's the key, mate. You, you can't scream for something and want something and then not go and support it. The Jack Jumpers came in, the basketball team this year. People jump. I know it's novel because it's new and they had a great season making the grand final. But people support it and that's what we need with cricket, football and everything, that people just to go along and support those Tasmanians that are trying to give it their best and achieve the highest level and, and thing that they can. Thank you very much, mate. Um, no, you don't do many podcasts, but appreciate your time. Did you have fun? I had a lot of fun and uh, really enjoyed it, guys. Thank you. Good man. Thank you. There we go. David Boone uh, joins us. Uh, thanks to Mousy for sorting that out as well. Um, got to say thank you again to our supporters, our sponsors, Whippersnapper, Whiskey, um, Margaret River Roasting Co., Blue Bet, Shelter Brewing Co., Leadable Cameras, and Dean Bradley Real Estate. He's sorting us out here around Mount Hawthorne. Uh, all the best stuff. Uh, week to week on Backchat. You know where to find it. Backchat, double underscore across socials. Uh, Backchatpodcast.com.au for the website. Watch us on YouTube. Listen to us on podcasts. And um, I think we're done. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 